1: Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than
2: 340 housing associations across the UK. To defeat this virus, we need a vaccine, better treatment methods and large-scale testing.
3: I have today left hospital after a week in which the NHS has saved my life, no question. How is it possible for us to be stronger after this crisis?
4: Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and this is the latest of our special episodes devoted to the coronavirus and Europe. Later, you'll hear from Nuria Oliver. She's the High Commissioner for Artificial Intelligence and COVID-19 in Valencia, Spain, and she's using big data to help understand the virus and how we might be able to return to normality. But first, let's talk about Belgium's response to the coronavirus, about confusing statistics and about antibodies and immunity, with our senior health reporter Sarah Wheaton and our trade reporter and all things Belgium expert Barbara Moons. So Barbara, you wrote a piece for us which is on the website today explaining why Belgium's death toll is so high. And the reason you reported on this is because Belgium only has about 11 million people, but the coronavirus crisis has caused more than 5,000 deaths, according to recorded figures. That would mean Belgium tops the number of deaths per capita in Europe. But it's not as simple as that. So Barbara, give us the short answer to the question... Why is Belgium's death toll from COVID-19 so high?
1: Um, Well, it's pretty simple, actually. Um, Most countries are only counting confirmed deaths in hospitals, whereas Belgium is including all potential deaths, not just in hospitals, but also in nursing homes, even when COVID-19 has not been confirmed as the cause of that. Um, So the Belgian experts say that if you want to compare the Belgian number with other countries, you basically just have to divide it by two. So other comparisons aren't really relevant.
4: Yeah, and why have they chosen to to count them that way, even, even deaths in nursing homes that have not been confirmed as COVID-19, to, to add them to the tally?
1: Yeah, they found it really important to see what's going on in nursing homes, because like in other European countries, there wasn't enough testing capacity in the beginning to not just test doctors in hospitals, but also test patients and healthcare workers in nursing homes. So they wanted to have a a sort of signaling function. And so um, they flagged every potential death in nursing homes to see where there was a problem or not, which obviously led to overcounting. And experts also acknowledged that, but they still said that it was more important. And they don't want to change the way that they're counting now, because then, you know, you would compare different things throughout the pandemic, which isn't really fair either.
4: Right, and Sarah, this just gets back to something uh, we've talked about repeatedly, which is the difficulty in comparing countries. The difficulty with with all uh, the data. Why are countries adopting such different uh, standards, and how much of a of an issue is that when it comes to trying to figure out, you know, who's doing well and who's doing not so well?
0: Well, it's basically another example of countries doing their own thing on health. Um, part of it is just. Um, Sort of a capacity question. One thing that we've heard is that um, doctors and nurses and, and frontline health workers are so busy treating patients that they that they don't have time to do the data entry. And then there just hasn't kind of been like a broad sort of set of guidelines put out saying here's how you count of death. So we're seeing issues of if you come into the hospital with a pre, some sort of pre-existing serious health condition um, and having coronavirus perhaps, is aggravating that or exacerbating that. And then different countries, and probably I would suspect different doctors, are making different calls about whether to mark that down as a coronavirus death or as a death from whatever that other condition is. Um, But the reality is that this is a problem um, with lots of diseases across the EU and across the world. For example, with cancer, countries will will register a cancer diagnosis in different ways, and therefore it might seem like countries have very different mortality rates from cancer um, because some countries, if you just kind of like have a polyp in your colon, they'll say that you have colon cancer. with other countries will make sure that you like truly have like colon cancer before marking that as a cancer diagnosis. And back before the coronavirus crisis launched, there's there was this all, all this talk about improving cancer treatment at the European level and aligning this data collection so that we can actually compare and contrast in a real way is a big topic. And it is kind of a a technical thing, but we're realising from this coronavirus situation that these kind of technical nuanced issues can have pretty big consequences.
4: Right. Especially when people are looking so much at international comparisons, uh, rightly or wrongly. and, And even, you know, as we've seen some very respected kind of aggregators of data are not really, it seems, comparing apples with apples. Um, Let's move on a little bit to how we might get out of all of this, or at least get out of lockdown. The other issue that that has come up and Been kind of seen maybe as a bit of a panacea at times has been the idea of antibody testing and the idea that that might show that you have immunity and then that would allow people to kind of get back to work and all that kind of stuff. But Sarah, it seems like recently uh, people have been casting doubt on that whole idea, scientists at, at any rate, yeah?
0: Right, so my colleagues Ashley Furlong and Judith Mishka just published an article looking at this question of antibody testing and the idea is that we could do a blood test and see if you have cells that sort of show that your immune system is is prepared to respond to the coronavirus, um, probably because you've been exposed to it before. But the sad reality is that having antibodies is not the same thing as actually being immune. So you might have some antibodies that are pretty good at at killing the the coronavirus, but you might just have other ones that just kind of... React to it, but don't don't accomplish much of anything. Um, the other kind of bigger issue is we. This is such a new virus that we still don't know things like if you had coronavirus, we don't know if or how long you're actually immune to it. So that's another just kind of major scientific question that we still need to answer before we have any any good sense of whether these work. And the other issue is just that. Kind of basic quality control issues. Uh, uh, there was some reporting last week that the UK government had, had spent, I believe, like 20 million pounds on buying a bunch of antibody tests. The government really presented this as, as their unique British way that they were going to uh, get out of lockdown. And it turned out that all those tests they bought didn't even work. So, kind of back to the Belgian question, but the Belgian government is among several that have said, that they're banning certain types of tests, including some at-home tests, because they're also worried that um, people, just kind of random doctors, non-experts, might misinterpret the results, and you could have people walking around thinking that they're immune when they're not. So this could be an answer in the future, but we're not particularly close yet.
4: Right well that brings us back to you Barbara and to what is the exit strategy for for Belgium what's the the timeline here and what are what's the approach they're taking in terms of of relaxing lockdown and and also can you often the you know the fault line in Belgian politics is between the uh, between Flanders the dutch speaking part and wallonia the french speaking part is that a factor here when they're uh, debating all of this
1: it's not, the exit strategy is not really clear yet. They are preparing it now, and the plan is to um, announce it on Friday after a new meeting between the different governments um, of Belgium. Obviously, like other European countries, they're looking at a mix of Contact tracing, testing—all um, those kinds of things—but it's not li- really clear how they will loosen the restrictions that we have now in Belgium. The divide between Flanders and Wallonia is is always a little bit there, especially in the beginning when we talked about should we close schools or not. Um, there was disagreement there. Um, in the end, they um, made a unified decision, which I think was um, was good for for clarity reasons but now it will be interesting to see when we talk about not just the immediate uh, crisis but really the how do we handle the economic the socio-economic consequences all that whether that will uh, we will see some more differences especially because Flanders is more economically to the right wallonia the french speaking part is more economically to the left so that obviously there's a ideological divide there as well so that will be something to watch
4: Okay, but we have already seen a little bit of a loosening, right? Because, uh, the DIY stores are open again. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I am hoping to get out this afternoon. I have a Brico, which is the, you know, the big DIY chain here, just along the street. And I have a little balcony, which I have not shown a lot of interest in over the past few years, but suddenly it sounds like a really, or looks like a really valuable outdoor space. So I think I'm going to go and try and get some, some balcony furniture if I can get some time this afternoon. Um, Okay. I think that probably covers it. Sarah, Barbara, thanks very much.
0: You're welcome. Thanks, Andrew.
4: Now let's hear from computer scientist Nuria Oliver, who was appointed in March as High Commissioner for AI and COVID-19 in Valencia, Spain. She spoke recently to our AI correspondent, Janos Delker, and Janos started by asking her how she came to hold the unique position that she has and what it means.
2: So it happened in an organic way, so to say. I have devoted all my scientific career to building computational models of human behavior, both individual behavior and aggregate behavior from data. And since the end of 2007, I've been working with uh, mobile data, you know, from the telco sector. So one of the uh, topics and areas that I help create, both at Telefonica and at Vodafone, and also the NGO that I also collaborate with, Data Pop Alliance, is devoted to is how to leverage large scale data, large scale human behavioral data, to help us make better decisions in a movement of um, uh, sort of like policy making based on evidence, understanding that the evidence. Uh, is reflected in the data. So through the analysis of the data, we could achieve this ideal of having evidence-driven policymaking. Based on all the uh, work that I had done for all these years, I uh, reached out to the Spanish government and to the Valencian government uh, offering this vision for how we can leverage large-scale data to help in the context of the COVID-19 crisis. And the Valencian region, particularly the president, is a great believer in data-driven decision-making, is a great supporter of AI. So he uh, decided to create this, I think, inspirational example of the, the civil society experts working closely with him in uh, helping assist in make better decisions through the analysis of data. So that's how, how it happened. <laughs> and now we have this team of like about 25 experts that, uh, you know, we produce a report every day for the president. Yeah.
3: Exactly. And, you know, I would love to, you know, to, to get some insights into how this work looks like. I know at 9.30 in the morning, you have your first meeting. There's someone yes. from the government is tuned into, also someone from the local data protection authority. Yes. Then by around 5 p.m. in the evening, you're sending a report to the government. Yes. So what's in that report? Like how, you know, what is in there? What, what are you sending them?
2: Yeah, so we are divided into three work streams. The first one is a work stream on human mobility uh, analysis because mobility and social contact are critical for the spread of the COVID-19. So quantifying human mobility, measuring the impact of the social contention measures, and understanding the flows of people, you know, through different regions is of paramount importance. The second work stream is on what you mentioned, digital epidemiology, computational epidemiology. We are building computational models that predict the spread of the disease, and that enable us to run simulations under different conditions of social contention and mobility. And then the third work stream is a more generic work stream on using data science, machine learning, applied to data, to solve different, you know, help make different decisions depending on the day, basically. In this last work stream is in the one where we launch this really large-scale citizens' science survey called the COVID-19 Impact Survey that has become one of the largest in the world right now with over 180,000 respondents. What we are working on right now is, A, we are building simulations of how the pandemic will behave as they lift the different contention measures, because the expectation is that there's going to be multiple waves, and, you know, we, we want to corroborate this with our own models. We've also built a model of how many infected people there might be. This is one of the biggest questions. Uh, we know that the reported cases is much lower than the real number of infected People, So we've done four different approaches in trying to infer how many really infected people there are. And the second priority that we're working on is on developing what we call priority maps. So we are now ranking different uh, regions based on different variables, and we are computing something like eight different variables. So we have a percentage of people over 60, percentage of intergenerational homes, which is a very interesting variable because since the 2008 financial crisis in Spain, a lot of families became intergenerational. We also have the inferred prevalence of the disease that we compute from the survey data and from the test data. We have the mobility, how much activity there is, and we are computing that from aggregate mobile data. We also have the decrease in mobility, and we have the availability of beds and intensive care units, so what's the capacity of that zone? And then finally, we also have the role that the zone plays in, the, in a graph that we build connecting all the zones, because not all of them play the same role in the diffusion of the, in this case, of the virus. So intervening in the ones that, are, that, that have an important role is more efficient. And the other big priority that we have right now, and is being debated a lot in Europe, is about how to achieve an efficient way and a privacy-preserving way for the early detection of the cases and their contacts. And that brings me to the highly debated topic of contact tracing.
3: Maybe for our listeners, we have to say that this is there's a discussion, um, not just in Europe but around the world, that as countries are eager to ease some of the restrictions that are currently really have led to this lockdown of economies all around the world, authorities will have to have a better way to understand infections. And what a lot of uh, people are pushing now and a lot of health authorities are working on are apps, um, applications for smartphones that trace, for example, uh, Bluetooth connections between two phones to understand where potential infections could have taken place and to be able to alert people who were around infected people within the previous week and a half, two weeks, as long as the incubation yes, period is. Exactly. And you said you have a different approach. What, what's, what's your approach?
2: Yes. So that's contact tracing. And so what we are uh, thinking about is something that we call citizen-based contact tracing uh, that is trying to tackle some of the limitations of a smartphone-based contact tracing. So for such a functionality to work, you need a very high adoption in the population. The second uh, challenge is, of course, privacy-related. There is a, a European initiative called pep which is fully privacy-preserving and GDPR-compliant, but there are Privacy issues around it, because it's quite personal information, you know, a a list of all the phones that you were nearby. And you could envision uh, potential negative unintended consequences if this was going to be used for other purposes, like policing or immigration, you know, or other purposes that are not uh, related to COVID-19. The third uh, challenge is a security challenge. Uh, We are developing all this functionality uh, really fast And of course, there will be a lot of security tests. But if there were to be a security vulnerability of this functionality, and you had it installed in the majority of phones of a population, that could present a very important risk. And then finally, and I always emphasize this, as much as I love technology, and I have devoted my life to technology, technology is part of the solution, but it's not the, the full solution. There has to be a lot of other pieces of the puzzle in place for the technology to work. And in the case of the contact tracing, there has to be in place a a heavy infrastructure for massive testing, because potentially my list of my contacts for the past 10 days could be of like 200 people. So you have to be willing to test a huge amount of the population, which means you have to have the testing infrastructure, you know, and all the tests available, you know, to be able to do that. Based on the compact of the on the COVID nineteen impact survey that we ran, one of the findings that was surprising to us was that the ones that told us that they were positive in COVID nineteen, over seventy percent of them also told us that they had had close contact with someone that was positive for COVID nineteen.
3: Uh, what does that mean? A close contact is that in the family or in the
2: Okay, so we gave different options. Mm -hmm. The most popular was in the household, and then there was relatives, friends, clients, patients, and co-workers. So this result hints to the idea that the majority of the people that are positive can somehow guess whom they got it from. It's not that they don't know. It turns out that they actually know someone that was infected, right? And if we think about how the epidemiological protocol has worked until now, in most countries, epidemiological teams interview patients of infectious diseases that are of what is called compulsory reporting and COVID nineteen is one of them, they do this interview where they ask about their contacts and they ask about their behavior with their contacts because they want to identify every case and all the contacts, you know, of that case. And this is done manually. So what hasn't a scale for COVID nineteen is that process, because it's a very manual, labor intensive, phone based process which doesn't work when you have hundreds of thousands of cases, right? So what we are thinking is what if for every infected person you gave the person a code and you tell the person please share this code with the five most likely people that you think you have you might have infected or with the seven most likely people you know that you think you might have infected because you've spent the most time with them you know in the past 12 days or 10 days and then this is a completely private Way, I mean, no one knows the identity of these people. And then those people, if they get the code, then they can use the code to get a test and to get tested. So it is a very different approach, perhaps more related to the traditional epidemiological protocol. Right. But it places a lot of trust in citizens and a certain amount of responsibility in citizens, but also empowerment. Right. In citizens. And I think it's fully privacy preserving.
3: Nuria Oliver, uh, the High Commissioner for AI and COVID-19 at the Government of Valencia in Spain. Thank you very much for taking your time and be safe.
4: Thanks to Janos for bringing us that conversation with computer scientist Nuria Oliver. And you can read more of Janos' coverage in his fortnightly newsletter called AI Decoded. You can sign up for free on our website. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We'll be back with another episode on Thursday as EU leaders once again meet virtually to talk about how to get out of this crisis. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Cristina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.